Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Yale Joffe. Yale is a professor in nutrigenomics at Rutgers University, and today we navigate the complex world of nutrigenomics and the relationship between genes, nutrition, and health. So, without further ado, Yale, welcome to the show. Hi Ben, very happy to be here. It is wonderful to have you on, and you have an absolutely fascinating background in area of research, so I'm really excited to uh, to just dive into it. Excellent. I just wanted to start off, or get the ball rolling with regards to genetics, because I've been of the mind for quite some time now that if genetics loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger, and now I've said that out loud, I realize you should probably come up with a softer analogy um, to convey that yeah. message. Um, but can you can you tell us what can our genetics really tell us about our health? Yeah, I actually have used that analogy myself, and it's probably not very appropriate. I think we definitely have to find a new one. Yeah. So I um I think of it um like this. So what genetics gives us is the ability to understand who we are in this world. So because we're ninety nine point nine percent identical in our DNA sequence. We are 0.1% different. And these three to four million places in our DNA sequence that are different from each other really defines who we are in this world. And by that, I mean how we respond to the world around us, how we respond to the food we eat, the supplements we take, the exercise we do, the stress we're, we're involved in, the trauma we're exposed to. So the first piece of that equation that you were talking about is who am I, know thyself, self-knowledge, mm -hmm. as I exist in this world and I respond to the world? And then the second part, which is kind of the pull, pull the trigger part, is when I make certain choices in my day, whether it's the coffee I drink, the food I eat, the exercise I do or don't do, how do those choices change the way my genes behave or express themselves? So that is the two pieces of genetics. And often people only have a conversation about the first part. Sometimes they only have a conversation about the second part. But I define it really as insight and action. Insight, know yourself, know your genes, know you are. Action, understand the best possible choices you can make to be able to express your genes in the most optimal way that you can. And that expression commonly referred to as epi the epigenome, right? Epigenetics. It's, yes. It's, so the epigenome and epigenetics is such a complicated concept. And in fact, the science is quite complicated. So um, I do, I do uh, love the field of epigenetics, but I think we must be very careful to be caught up in the, the molecular side of it. Because mm -hmm. what it comes down to is how can I make better choices that are going to switch on and switch off genes in a way that is going to help me heal my body or achieve optimal health. And this is the, the field of epigenetics. And I've kind of just brought it down to its absolute ba basics, which is what are the choices I make? And if I, before I stop talking, 
I think of this equation in my head and it's called the G plus C equals H equation. So G is your genetics and C are the choices you make. And by choices, I mean the micro choices, not whether you decide to be vegan or vegetarian or a carnivore, but every single minute of every single day, what choices are you making? And then how do those, that combination of the, your, your genetic inheritance with the choices you're making, which is epigenetics, right? Mm -hmm. Impact your health. And so I try and like always figure out like, how can I make it something that is so simple in my head that I'm constantly aware of this interplay between my genes and the choices I'm making in my diet environment. Right. Okay. That's, that's hugely fascinating because I feel like everyone's trying to do something to improve their health, whether it be changing their environment, changing the kind of cosmetics that they're putting on their skin to reduce toxic load, making sure they have a, a good exercise or have a plant-based diet because they assume that's healthy. But what I think is really interesting is that the way we tolerate certain foods, whether they be vegetables or, or from animal protein, for example, or animals, I should say, um, can be predicted or somewhat predicted by our genetics is that correct well you know i'm not completely convinced by that at the moment okay. so i know that there there are many companies in the marketplace that are building their platforms based on this idea that um a couple of things so one is that they promise that they can tell you whether you should be a vegan a vegetarian or carnivore whether you mm -hmm. should be paleo or keto the other thing which i love seeing in the marketplace is um companies that say that you could your best weight management plan is either going to be you know low carb or low carb high fat or mediterranean or that somehow we can take this complexity of genetics and come up with a singular diet plan so i'm not on that bandwagon i really think that there's a reductionist uh, mindset that is trying to take an incredibly complex field which is genetics and epigenetics and try to reduce it down to a very simplistic answer of this diet plan is the best diet plan for you. So I, I can give you a couple of reasons why I, would, I, I don't believe it, but, but ultimately I think we're, this is, while I'm on this kind of soapbox, this is one <laughs> of the problems we've experienced with the genetic testing industry, where there's so many companies who are so willing to overstretch the science to be able to create such a simplistic reductionist answer for the consumer that is really easy to message and sell, mm -hmm. but actually undermines the value of genetics to the individual, if that makes sense. Because it's in the complexity that really the value sits. So by trying to make a whole genetic test about whether you should be a carnivore or a vegan, is actually losing out around what I started with saying, which is genetics gives us the ability to understand how we respond to the world around us. Okay, that makes perfect sense. I find it interesting because there, there are certain genes which predict, for example, detoxification pathways. So I would assume from that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I want to dive into this a little bit more if you don't mind. Um, I would assume from that, that that would also um, give you an indicator of if you should consume cruciferous vegetables for example or your intake of them 100 percent right so you're 100 percent right so where is genetics useful is exactly what you just described so we know that in that in phase one and phase two detoxification people respond very differently mm -hmm. and the ability to activate toxins in phase one 
and then conjugate and clear toxins out of phase two and excrete them out the body is hugely variable amongst individuals. And one of the greatest, greatest predictors of that is, is genetic variation or SNPs. Right. 100% right. That is insight. So I take a genetic test and I study a whole lot of genes that have variants in them that impact my ability to detoxify. And I get an insight from that genetic test on how optimally I'm able to detoxify um, toxins, whether it's exogenous from my environment or even kind of toxic metabolites that are produced by a body. That's my 50% equation. <laughs> now, my other 50% of the equation, remember insight and action is, so what do I do now, right? So you actually raise a great thing. You say, well, cruciferous vegetables are broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, except Brussels sprouts, broccoli sprouts, have this extraordinary compound in them, which in its pure sense is called glucoraphanin. And when it um, reacts with an enzyme arosinase, creates sulforaphane. Mm -hmm. Now, sulforaphane for me is the most exciting plant molecule of the century. And the reason being is sulforaphane is able to activate genes, to switch on genes. And one of the groups of genes that it's able to switch on is the detoxification genes, in particular, these GST genes, the glutathionase transferases. So when our body is really battling to clear toxins, particularly if we have genetic variation in those GST genes, and we increase our intake of raw, raw cruciferous vegetables, not cooked cruciferous vegetables, we are able to switch on and upregulate those genes that are able to clear toxins. But sulforaphane is even more extraordinary like that, because not only can it switch on detoxification genes, sulforaphane can switch on a transcription factor called NRF2. I'm sure you're familiar with NRF2. Yes. And I call NRF2 the master switch. You walk into your house, you switch on one switch at the front door, and actually it switches on all the switches in your house, right? And that's what NRF2 is. It's the master switch. So you switch on NRF2 and it's able to switch on about 500 genes that all are defense acting, defense against toxins, oxidative stress, inflammation, um, all the nasty things that we're trying to, they defense genes. So this is what we call nutrigenomics. So nutrigenetics, genetics is where we test your DNA and we look at your variation, your inheritance. Nutrigenomics is where we use nutrition to change gene expression intentionally. Now you with your degree in nutrition will understand that the history of dietetics is extremely poor, truly, like really. Mm -hmm. And that was my background as a dietitian. I still, I still um, regard myself as a dietitian, but I distanced myself from this idea of how dietetics was taught because the true power of nutrition, the real power of nutrition is the ability of nutrients to be able to switch on genes that will then heal the body itself and not this concept of nutrition uh, to plug holes. So you probably got a way bigger answer than you, than you <laughs> intended. But anyway, that's my answer to cruciferous vegetables. <laughs> no, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And thank you for, uh, for expanding on your answer more so. And I, I just want to unpick that a little bit because a lot of people I think will be concerned now, or maybe, maybe it's just a concern of mine, in terms of uh, the link between goitrogens in cruciferous vegetables and especially raw cruciferous vegetables and if that's going to be an issue for people even if they are they are eating them 
for, for like you said, this sulforaphane and the, the health benefit in terms of phase one and phase two liver detoxification? Excellent question. Clearly you're a nutritionist. Excellent <laughs> question. So goitrogens are definitely not something that we want to have too much in the diet. They have an impact on iodine and, the, and, and obviously the thyroid mm-hmm. ultimately. So when you look at the content of goitrogens in cruciferous vegetables, it's not the same for all cruciferous vegetables. And you actually have to look at which of the vegetables that have the highest goitrogens in. And it's, um, it's uh, Brussels sprouts, um, bok choy, and I think maybe Chinese cabbage. But broccoli and cauliflower and normal cabbage and broccoli sprouts do not have high levels of goitrogens. So the only thing we need to watch out is, is and kale, sorry. I actually don't think it's bro- uh, Brussels sprouts, my thing. It's kale that has some of the highest, highest levels of goitrogens. So one of the things we saw recently in the last couple of years is this kind of kale revolution. I don't know if it's the same thing that's happened where you are. 100%. We're literally, <laughs> everyone's gone crazy on kale, right? Yes. It's almost like the most tricky vegetable to eat. It's like eating cardboard. It's really <laughs> hard to cook. It's got no flavor. But we're all crazy about it because it's kind of a cruciferous vegetable. But the problem with kale is actually it's got a very high content of goitrogens when it's particularly when it's raw. So what we found was that everyone was stuffing kale into their smoothies every morning, handfuls of raw kale into their smoothies. So we had a Parkinson's patient in our clinic who did everything right. He was like following like Terry Stalls and he was having like 10 portions of raw vegetables every day, but he was getting, his Parkinson's was getting worse and the doctor couldn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And after a lot of work with him, because he was actually like the perfect, perfect patient, is he was using handfuls and handfuls of raw kale every day in his smoothies. Right. And the goitrogens had actually impacted his thyroid in such a way that he couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't walk wasn't the Parkinson's that was actually doing the damage. So you're 100% right, we have to be careful, but not all cruciferous vegetables are an issue. And, and the problem with kale is raw kale is extremely high. And there's a couple of bok choy raw, and I think the other one is Chinese cabbage, but broccoli and cauliflower cabbage and broccoli sprouts, which is really where we have the highest levels of glucoraphanin and sulforaphane, actually have very, very low glucogens. Glu- um, right. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much for picking that. I also think I came across, I think it was Rhonda, Dr. Rhonda Patrick said this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, mustard seed contains the marosinase enzyme. So potentially you could have something like, I don't know who's sprinkling mustard seed on all the vegetables, but technically you could have something like steamed kale where you'd reduce some of the goitrogens and also reduce some of the oxalates which can be a problem for some people and then use this as a tool to still stimulate sulforaphane but minimize the kind of toxic burden i say toxic burden the burden of some of the plant chemicals which might have potentially have a negative effect on your health so you're right um and and i think Rhonda patrick's brilliant um the problem with it so so Mustard seeds do contain, do contain morosinase. The mm-hmm. problem is the practical application of putting mustard seeds into everything that you eat <laughs> and how much you would have to include is extremely difficult. It's also how far you cook that cruciferous vegetable before you act, um, add your mustard seed. 
So if you lightly steam them, so actually, if you lightly steam your vegetables, like less than 30 seconds, well, there's no issue. But when you're steaming your vegetables for 10 minutes, you really are kind of wiping it out. So yes and no. In theory, it is it, it, it actually does work. But in practice, putting mustard seeds into all your vegetables is actually not really um, that easy or practical or delicious. So unfortunately, it's very hard to get around the... Um, the Marasanes issue. And I always say like, if you, you know, if you're having all the coleslaws and the cabbage salads and then kind of, obviously smoothies is a great way to put in raw cruciferous vegetables. Um, there are a lot of patients that I use a broccoli sprout supplement that mm. has active Marasanes in where it's just for many patients impossible to get enough uh, cruciferous vegetables in. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. How do you get over the, um, I'm diving into to anti-nutrients now. I hope you don't mind this. Um, I'll get off okay. this topic soon. <laughs> um, the um, oxalates and things of that nature, which are in cruciferous vegetables. How do you get over yeah. that? Or is that ever an issue for I some patients? I don't know that it's as much an issue as everyone makes it out to be, seriously. Mm -hmm. I think if you're, if you're having a lot of um, mixed vegetables and diversity in your diet, and cruciferous vegetables are one component, and... You know, it, it's more like when we think about the spinach and those kind of things. I personally think it's, think it's quite overstated. I think if your entire diet is only spinach and kale, it might be, and tea, it might be an issue. <laughs> but I, um, I'm not sure it's the right focus. I think if there's enough diversity in the diet, um, then the oxalates shouldn't be an issue. Right. Yeah, I Again, diversity is key. I, I can see this being a concern in people which are maybe following something like a keto ketogenic diet where they are eating those cruciferous vegetables. Green, yeah, yeah, a lot of the green vegetables as their green main. vegetables because that's all they can eat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yes, you're absolutely right. But I imagine it would be then. I've been ketogenic uh, time for time. And it's, it's certainly when I was doing my biomedical degree, I had uh, great benefits with it in terms of like, mental clarity and energy and all these kinds of things. But I was eating raw spinach salads and kale and lots of those things and i think maybe over time you know is probably having sore joints which were maybe not down to my exercise right so yeah yeah i mean i have to say one. that sore joints on a ketogenic diet is a whole nother conversation i mean yes it could have been the oxalates but i'm just you probably were having a very high animal protein intake yeah. as well well yeah moderate it depends i think i was on because i was training at the time I, th I think i was probably on about 100 to 120 grams of protein still it's not it's not too high i don't think because yeah, normally no. normally some people go one-to-one -one ratio yeah. of protein to fat i was a little bit lower because otherwise it would knock me out of ketosis at the time um i know so. other different people work differently i know some people can tolerate 50 grams of carbs i couldn't go above that, 30. therein is genetics right <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that's exactly how how do our genes change the way we respond to the world around us and that brings back my point to things that saying that everyone will do the same on the same diet plan is just never going to happen exactly what you just said about that yeah yeah 100 and Considering we're on a ketogenic diet, maybe we could dive into fats a little bit because that's a really interesting one. Because um, the FADS1 and FADS2 gene play yeah. a huge role in this area. And I'm wondering if you could dive into that to understand the interplay between our genetics and how we tolerate saturated fat, but also total fats in general from all sources. So um, you may not get the most satisfactory answer from me on this, but... Um, <laughs> 
I think okay, whatever so the you say, teams, I'm going to be satisfied. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like I'm like all negative today, but <laughs> the fans, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm, I'm saying that. So there is this idea that um, we can gain this extraordinary amount of information about how we metabolize and respond to different facts through our genetics. And of course, the biggest problem we have with fats in the, in the, in the scientific literature is that most studies don't break down research by fatty acid. And so they have this kind of broad saturated, monounsaturated, kind of polyunsaturated. And more recently, we're seeing a little bit more broken down, but it's very difficult to find research that breaks down not in the fatty acids, but also putting genetics into it. So there are these genes, the FAD genes, and basically what the FADs one and FADs two, and basically what they inform on is how do we convert fatty acids? So for example, we know that we have this kind of omega-3 pathway and this omega-6 pathway from kind of linoleic acid through to arachidonic acid, and how we convert from linoleic acid um, into arachidonic acid is different between all of us. Okay. Some of us will convert very efficiently and end up with a high pro-inflammatory fatty acid profile. And others of us would be better at kind of converting into a more kind of omega-3 pathway. The problem I have with this is that they're not that many genes. So there's the FADS1 and FADS2. There's a couple of other genes which are association studies like APOA2, mm -hmm. which give us information about association. So a group of individuals who have a particular APOA gene, who had a higher saturated fat intake, were more likely to be overweight. The problem with that kind of research is what kind of saturated fatty acids were they eating? Well, we don't know mm -hmm. because they didn't break it down by fatty acids. So it, when I look at the, the fats literature and genetics, there's only one or two SNPs gene variants in FADS2 that I actually think is really robust in terms of the literature into giving us some insight about how we're converting our fats and whether we need to place more emphasis on having a higher intake of omega-3s and decreasing our linoleic acid. But we need to be very careful in this space because actually, as far as genetics go, this has been an area where it hasn't really done extremely well. Mm -hmm. And we need to be careful about making these far-flung decisions around our responsiveness to fats without the science really supportive. So I do include FADS in, in my genetic test, but I actually don't include FADS1. Mm. And I definitely don't make any recommendations about broad-based saturated or monounsaturated. Um, there was something else I was going to say, and I forgot it now. <laughs> okay. I, I, if I remember it, I'll tell you. No but, worries. Yeah. My question was about saturated fat and total fats in general. But that's mm. really interesting that you don't include FADS1 and the fact that FADS2... You think it's in the gut robust data. I mean, what you said about the fatty acid profile, I think is really underrated in terms of your body's going to, well, everyone's going to react very differently to lauric acid or palmitic acid than they are to something like steric acid, which is basically, yeah. you know, inert in terms of lipemia and things of that nature and cholesterol levels. Sorry, I should have said correction. Um, so, yeah. Can I talk about fats? I'll talk, can I talk about, so when I make comments like why I don't include in my, in my test, there's can I just talk to that for a second sure absolutely on why. so so one of the so, so I've been building genetic tests for 20 21 years now um started in 2000 and for the first 16 years I pretty much did the same thing 
um, which is I looked at the scientific literature, looked at what the genes do and the variant does, and I looked <laughs> to see whether there was studies that said that this gene variant was associated with a particular phenotype or condition. So was FADS1 or FADS2 associated with um, cardiovascular disease? Was it associated with obesity? Was it associated with um, raised inflammatory profile? Oh, that's what I was going to talk about. Is that actually, um, there's a lot of really good research around inflammation and fatty acids. Okay. But um, what I discovered about four years ago was that the literature had grown so much over the 20 years that there was so many studies that were showing that these gene variants were associated, and I keep on reiterating this word, with particular phenotypic conditions. And what has happened in the genetic Sorry, testing industry- Sorry, can you just confirm phenotypic conditions? Can, can, can you name one just so in, for context? How the body manifests, what the body looks like, what we're measuring in the body. So when I use, I'll, I'll stop using the word phenotype, it's, it's just our body, something we can measure and look at in our body, mm -hmm. right? So, so I was saying like, when I started out, we were so desperate to find genes to put into genetic tests because it was such a new industry that we were so excited when we saw any studies on a gene. But now we're 16 years later and we're still looking at these research reports and saying, just because a gene appears in the, in the scientific literature, we're going to build it into a test. So about four years ago, I started looking at all the genetic testing companies in the marketplace and I call them the mushrooms because every single time I wake up in the morning, there's a new genetic testing company <laughs> offering you the world, right? Yeah. I see you're smiling because the, the it's a total truth. Yeah, and right? yes, you're mushroom, absolutely right. right. And that's how mushrooms grow. So <laughs> I was just like, what's wrong with the industry? Something's wrong with the genetic testing industry that I've also been a part of of the last 16 years. And I started thinking about these association studies that just because a gene variant, a SNP, has been associated with condition, whether it's obesity, arthritis, or cardiovascular disease, or chronic fatigue, is not enough anymore. And so I started building out a methodology that said, how do we work out what kind of genes should be included in a genetic test? Mm. And I started building a set of criteria that said, how do we make sure that if we're going to build genetic tests, we don't overreach the science, overpromise, just to make some money? And the first set of criteria, the four criteria in the first half, which was around science, science, and it's a whole lot of ways that we evaluate science. So we look at the studies, the statistics, how many people, the journal, whether we did it in humans or whether we did it in mice. We looked at, you know, does this does this gene make sense? If I, if, I wanted, if I wanted to tell you what kind of fat to eat in your diet, if I look at the research, does it connect with that? But then I took it to another level. And I said, you know, it's not just good enough that the science is telling me so, because anyone who's done a PhD or worked in a research institute, as you have, will know that to a certain degree, you can manipulate science, mm -hmm. either in the kind of statistics that you use, the question that you ask, the way you write your research paper, you can get a message across that isn't necessarily completely true to the science. So I wanted another measure. And my other measure was based on what I call clinical utility, which is how useful is this to me? So what, who cares? So even if there's good science, does this 
does this piece of information make a difference to me in my life? I always say, when I wake up in the morning and I choose what I'm going to have to have for breakfast, will having done this genetic test and having this gene in the test help me make a better decision for my, for my breakfast? Mm -hmm. So I built a whole set of criteria that had to be evaluated that said, if I include this gene, will it help you as a practitioner make a better decision for your patient? And suddenly there were a whole lot of genes who didn't qualify because even though they existed in the scientific literature, they weren't powerful enough or impactful enough or weren't connected enough to something in our body that meant they really would be useful to me as a dietitian when I was working with you. Right. And so when I talk about FADS1 and FADS2, and I say FADS1 isn't in my report, it's not because the science isn't there. It's because when we put it through the set of criteria, it wasn't good enough to be able to get through and, and what we call survive, we call our methodology Darwin because it's a whole idea of survival, is that we really didn't, don't know enough about FADS1 and how we can use it in our clinical decision-making. So sorry, a bit of a diversion, but I think it's really important we talk about this because the genetic industry is fraught with companies. And I know one of the questions you sent me was, how do we choose a genetic testing company that we can trust and get valuable information? So that's kind of a little segue into it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess, uh, like you said before, and just to reiterate it, you get a lot of promises out of one genetic test. And I've, I've actually run my DNA through 23andMe, um, a couple of companies, DNA Fit, Strategy, and Dr. Ben Lynch's program, and a bunch of other programs. And I kind of just look to see where the crossover is, right? So I, I'm not trained in, in nutrigenetics. Don't pretend to be. I would love to be in the future, but it's not something that I'm focusing on right now. So... I'm looking at this and that what information can I take away and also what diets have I done in the past and how is that related to my fatty acid, oh, sorry, uh, blood panel, for example, cholesterol levels, things of that nature. So I know my saturated fat intake, if I have lots of coconut oil, for example, my LDL increases somewhat and um, so does my HDL. But yeah, interesting. <laughs> so, um, but it does increase to a level which I, I am not happy with. So I will like back off a little bit there are no other indicators to suggest that I'm, I'm causing an increase in heart disease. I've got low blood pressure, low triglycerides, everything else perfect, right? Let's pretend, <laughs> but, it, but it's true. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting one. And then I look at the data and people are like, oh, well, you should, I, I seem to be slap bang in the middle um, with a lot of them saying that you should have more monounsaturated fats, you can tolerate saturated fat a little bit. And it's interesting when you brought up the idea of um, no one should be on, or you can't make blanket statements about one particular diet, carnivore or vegan, etc. Because there are like almost religions about it's almost religious. So like what you should follow, people are like it should be you know high carb, low fat, vegan diet, or you know carnivore, ketogenic, and no carbs apart from glycogen and meat. And I'm just like, surely this does does not hold up to scrutiny in terms of you know individual variation. Um, yeah, that, that's just a rant rather than a question. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's like 100%, you know, the blood group diet is a perfect example where they came out and said like, your entire diet and lifestyle could, should be based on your blood group. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you've got 20 plus minus 25,000 genes. 
you've got a three to four million places in your DNA, which are going to change how you respond. And you t- and, and, and blood, blood group is actually determined genetically. And you're telling me that one gene out of all of this that divides the world's population into like three or four is going to determine the diet you're going to eat. So how is that personalized nutrition? So, so one of the things I really see a red flag is anytime someone says to me that everyone should do keto, everyone should do paleo, everyone should do low carb. I'm like, never. Everything about our DNA tells us that we respond differently to the food we eat and the world around us. So Love there that. are some people who, who just thrive on a ketogenic diet. And there are others who feel absolutely awful. They gain weight, they're sluggish, the absolute opposite. So we've got to get away from this deal. I'm not saying there's not value in vegan or in keto and paleo or in any of these diets. I'm saying when someone puts out a book and says, this is the next thing, and there's always a next thing, right? There's, <laughs> or you and I have lived through this all the time. This is the next thing. We've got to think to ourselves, 25,000 genes will determine why we are different in the world around us. Surely no one single diet plan is perfect for me. And let me try figure out by using a really good genetic test and an excellent practitioner who's trained to be able to interpret these genetic tests where I live, because it might be somewhere between keto and vegan, and it might be somewhere, and it might be that actually carbs are okay. Because there was a time when I started my dietetics practice in the 19, gosh, 90s, early 1990s, we were all eating carbs, like a lot of carbs, like 50% carbs, even 60% carbs. And you know what? We weren't obese. Mm-hmm. And we weren't sluggish. And we were happy and we were healthy. So what happened? So I think, you know, we've got to, we've got to step back always and not get caught up in this, this craziness of the next big thing. Because we've got to understand who we are and we've got to understand biochemistry and like yourself, you're exploring and trying to understand how do I respond? Okay, this didn't work so well, so I'm going to make an adjustment. I'm going to look at my genes and I'm going to learn about some stuff in my genes that's guiding me. Genetics is informational. It gives me insight. It's not the only thing about me, Mm -hmm. right? It's a piece of the puzzle of who I am as well. It doesn't define who you are but it is a significant piece of the puzzle. Yes, I completely agree with everything that you just said. And the idea of it just being a, a piece of the puzzle, but you know, just because um, you have data doesn't mean it's useful. Like I always say this with the, the aura ring, which I'm currently wearing, I believe you are too. Yeah, <laughs> right. So the, the data I find extremely useful, but some people were asking me about it and saying, you know, should they get one? I was like, well, would you be able to action the data that you get? Like, do you know yeah. what, and, and that's the thing is that if you get one, yeah. is it just going to make you paranoid that, you know, your HRV is a little bit lower on some days or consistently or some weeks or that your heart rate, you know, when you have a couple of glasses of wine is extremely high, you know, are you going to really understand what it means and what you can do long-term or is it just going to make you more anxious? So I think it's, it's really important to have someone like yourself um, that can read this information and actually have actionable things from it as well. So I just want to speak to data. So that's yeah. one, one of my big bugbears is that the way the genetic testing industry was built was as, you know, it, it has stayed, we're selling data. And when I looked at genetic testing reports a couple of years ago, and I looked at what 
I, my first genetic test I built was actually in England. I was based in Havant near Southampton. And the first, one of the first genetic tests, nutrigenetic tests in the world was built in Havant. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. And in you Havant. were part of that, right? And I was part of that team. That's right. I was their second employee. Knew nothing. Knew absolutely nothing about genetics. <laughs> Barely knew what a gene was, but no one else did. So that was good for me. So um, when, oh, now you see, I've completely, after, I, oh, data. So in 2000, we built a genetic test, a neutrogenome test, right? And we, 13 genes, it had 13 genes. And we were, we thought we were very clever. Well, we were at the time. No one else thought we were very clever. They thought we were doing science fiction. 16 years later, having done quite a few genetic testing companies in the interim, I sat down and I looked at all the companies I've been involved in, but also the mushrooms. And when I looked at the reports, they hadn't changed. They hadn't changed from the first one I built in 2000 until 2016, there were more genes. Mm -hmm. The PDF worked a lot better, downloaded quicker. They had more pretty pictures, better design. But I was still getting this, this report that had a table, a list of genes, an answer, and then either a traffic light, you know, orange, red, green, or stars or stripes, but, but nothing about what I could do, mm -hmm. what I could change, or what this meant to me what to eat for breakfast. And so for me, where we failed predominantly is we sold data for 16 years. Now, whether you paid 500 pounds or 500 euros, whatever you want to call it, or 20 pounds for that genetic test, there was little value. Because as long as we're selling data and not translational value, then genetics has not lived up to its potential, which it has. So don't get me wrong, genetics has huge potential, but not when it's delivered to an individual as a PDF with a table that gives you a T or a C or a CSC. Now you sent me two reports that you've done. Yeah. The one that, that for me live on complete opposite spectrums, all right? Mm -hmm. But both of which, in my opinion, offered you very little value. So the one gave you so it's much dog, data. Okay. Sorry? He said, is your dog okay? Oh, yeah, my dog's fine. Sorry about that. <laughs> I can't, I've, given up. I've totally given up trying to control. <laughs> I, give, I, I give them a bone before the podcast doesn't, you know, and hope for the best. Yeah, don't worry. They get over it. I'm just making sure <laughs> if, you, if you needed to see to, that would be absolutely no, fine. Good. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about it. So the one report you showed me mm -hmm. has so much biochemistry and yes. biochemical pathways that even I, who have been doing this for 20 years, feel so intimidated and overwhelmed that I cannot read it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand half the terms in there. I don't understand the pictures. All it makes me feel is that the person who built the test is extremely clever because they obviously know stuff that I don't know. When I tried to look at your report and try to extract value out of it, and this is me who has a PhD in nutrigenomics, mm -hmm. I actually gave up. I, I made a few notes and then I stopped because it is so data-driven and so biochemistry-facing that I couldn't find a single clinical value in it that I could say to you, this is what you should do tomorrow when you wake up in the morning. Right. So, so it's very paternalistic in a way. It's like, I'm going to be really clever and I'm going to show you how clever I am, but actually I'm not going to tell you what to do when you wake up in the morning, right? 
for me, zero value. And we'll talk about the, the fact that it was a 23andMe upload. Okay. The second report that I saw was around sports and exercise, which was very pretty. It has, and that the, the company, I don't want, has incredibly good graphics. They designed their reports beautifully. Yours is quite an old one. They've mm -hmm. even got better since then. Yes. But I was trying to find out from it, what should you do now? So it was sports and exercise based. And I was having a look at your genes and I was having a look at the way they portrayed it. And I was trying to think, so tomorrow you're going to go to your trainer or you obviously a very, um, you know, a lot about training. You're going to say, I am going to make the, the following changes to my training program because of what I learned from my genetic test. Mm -hmm. Did I get, did I get enough? Did it warrant enough? So for me, when I looked at it, even looking at your genes again, I was like, yeah, I kind of like get why they gave you the answers they gave you, but I couldn't figure out what the recommendations I was going to give you to change your training program. Right. Yeah. So one of the things we got to be careful in the market is the one side where it's so data driven and so um, kind of paternalistic in the way it looks like a, a, a test that you get from a, um, a blood testing company. I had an example, like you go to the NHS, you have your bloods done, right? But doesn't actually have your value. And the other one where they've dumbed down the data so much that almost you like, well, this is really nice, but I'm not quite sure what to do now. How, how to change my life. So one of the things we, we need to solve in the genetic testing world is this exact problem is how do we get away from setting data and sell translational value? Mm -hmm. And I think that is the greatest challenge that genetic testing companies have to endure. And, and when you are trying to decide what kind of company you want to get a genetic test from and get these amazing insights about yourself, you have to be thinking, will I get information that'll help me make better decisions tomorrow? Yep, I couldn't agree more with that. Couldn't agree more with that. And the, 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 were, the two tests that I sent you, on purpose, by the way, were polar opposites. Um, so, but that's the kind of stuff that you get. And I think for people, like, I would consider myself pretty well-read in general in this field, right? But even, even I can't sit down and be like, right, what am I going to do next? How is this going to benefit me? And like you said, you can't either. And you are much more well-read than I think anyone who I've ever spoken to in this field. So, yeah mental <laughs> we, we, we need to do better we yes. need to do better and and i think you know that's what i've set my heart on now is how do we fix the industry how do we you know like web 2.0 you know how do we how do we we reimagine how we can provide you with a genet your genetic information in a way that really can change your life because genetics is awesome i mean it's amazing but only slight, if you do a good slight job. Slight bias there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> slight bias. <laughs> oh, come on, you have to agree. Yeah, Genetics agree. is awesome. But we got to do better. We've, yeah. we've just got to do better in how we are giving it to you to work with. And as you say, you're super educated in this space. I've got one more question to ask you about one particular gene. And it is related to everything that we've just spoken about. Um, and then I really want to move on to the interplay between our microbiome and genetics. Um, but I, I will ask you this question. So I came across a, a slew of papers looking at um, the copies of AMY1 gene and geolocation and how it relates to carbohydrate metabolism. Now, we spoke about how you can't really predict on what you should eat, 
based on your genetics. However, this one, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that you can in terms of carbohydrate. So basically oh, the more, sorry, I was going to say the more, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> it seems, seems to be predominantly, um, or there seems to be, from the data I've looked at, and I'm sure there's many other papers, obviously, um, predominantly in southeastern populations, like Southeast Asia, for example, Southeast Asian populations seem to have more copies of the AMY1 gene and not only have the ability to better digest carbohydrates, but to better assimil assimilate them as well. Now, I wasn't able to unpick whether this is better insulin secretion or utilization or indeed whether they just have more glute 2 receptors on their intestine you know i i, I wasn't there i'll wasn't explain there okay perfect okay, <laughs> well, but i just want to i just want to go back to what you said about genetics can't tell you what to eat genetics can absolutely tell you what to eat just not your fatty acids exactly right okay so okay, don't good. get me wrong that the whole point of this genetic testing is to be able to build a personalized nutrition plan mm -hmm. there is so much we can tell you what to eat I just made the note around dietary fatty acids that I feel is the is one of the areas where we 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 really are not as as good as I would like us to be. Right. But okay, certainly the whole sense. point is genetics. Okay. Right. All right. So AMY one is absolutely fascinating, but unfortunately, I have to explain a different concept. So sure. up until now, I have been talking about this concept of genetic variation and SNPs, right? Which is I have we have these spelling changes in our DNA three to four million places in our DNA that is completely normal. It's part of why some of us are taller and shorter and blonde and blue eyes. It defines why we're different from each other. Com this is how evolution really works, right? And what happens in our DNA is we get these spelling changes. So there's only four letters in DNA, C, T, and A, and G. And these spelling changes that define why we're different mean that in some of us, we at a certain point on our gene, we might have an A and another person might have a G and that'll define why you have blue eyes versus brown eyes, right? Up until this point today, that is what I've been talking about. I've been talking about this idea of SNPs mm -hmm. where some people might have one letter and others have another letter. And depending on what letter you have will give us some insight into why you're different and how you respond to the environment. AMY1 <laughs> is not that. So thank okay. you for throwing that in. Okay. So AMY1 is something called a copy number variant. So we have this other very interesting and cool thing that happens in genetics when it's not about whether the there's a spelling change, so a G or a C or T, T it's how many copies of the gene do we have copy number variant right mm -hmm. how many copies in our cell do we have so this is a, a form of how we differ to the world around us it's um one of one of the interesting areas where we have we know how to measure copy number we know how to measure how many versions of a gene you have we don't know as well how to interpret it for clinical use However, in AMY1, we do. So you chose like the most perfect example to describe <laughs> copy number. So in AMY1, what they found was that there was a huge variability in how many copies individuals had in their cell. And the, the copies range anything from like two up to 18 copies. And the average individual has about six copies. Mm -hmm. Now, AMY1, stands for amylase 
And amylase is an enzyme that breaks down starch. And we have a lot of this gene expressing itself in our mouth because it makes sense, right? So we bite into some nice, delicious, starchy food, we chew it, and we've got to break down those starch molecules to be able to digest it and absorb it. And it's this beautiful enzyme, amylase, that does that job. Now, the more copy numbers you have, the more efficient you are at being able to break down starch. So anything from six upwards, you are very efficient at breaking down starch. Anything from kind of six downwards, like the twos and the threes, you are going to battle to digest starch. Now, the interesting thing you spoke about is around geography. Everything about genetics is evolutionary. We, mm -hmm. we talk about evolutionary biology because these genetic variants, these changes in our DNA occurred over evolutionary time. And what's so fascinating about genetics and these, these gene variants is that they usually occurred as an evolutionary advantage. So we talk about the APOE gene and we talk about this 3-4 and everyone's like, oh, the E4, it's so bad. It's associated with Alzheimer's. But actually E4 was the original version of the APOE gene. When we were hunter-gatherers, it was E4 that we wanted to help us survive. And later on, we developed the other ones. So at one time in evolutionary history, a version of the gene would actually be advantageous. And then over time, when we go and live in a Western population where we eat these processed foods all the time and we have too many calories, it may not be. Mm -hmm. Now, AMY1 is exactly a beautiful example of evolutionary advantage. So if you live in a part of the world where the... the major part of your diet is starchy carbohydrate. If you cannot digest that starch, you will die. And your population group will die with you. So what happened with AMI1 is that in the population groups that went from hunter-gatherer to farmers, where they were farming a grain that had starch in, we saw an increase in the number of these gene copies of AMM1 so that they would be able to extract more nutritional value out of the starches that they were farming and absorbing and digesting. Right. And if we look today at the at population, we still see that. So where a carb, particularly a starchy carb, is the dominant diet, especially when we see things like Africa or Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. um, you will still see higher copy number variants. Whereas the lower carb environments, you will see lower carb number variants. Well, that makes that makes much more sense. What about the um, the the way they're able to assimilate those carbohydrates as well? Because, and maybe I misread this. I thought the AMY, the number of copies, also related to how they're able to tolerate the carbohydrates as well. So not just digest them, but the amount of the the control of blood glucose. Well, I think it's probably related, but it's but it's digestion first. So amylase yeah. is a digestive enzyme. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you can't digest it, then <laughs> it's going to impact everything downstream from that. Yeah. So so, but it, but in essence, it's it's a digestive amylase is a digestive enzyme, but obviously, poorly digested starch is going to impact glycemic control significantly, as well as probably a couple of other things. So, I mean, you're not wrong, but the, but amylase actually primarily is a digestive enzyme. Okay. So, so the, in terms of like a really usable marker, 
<laughs> that's good. That's got to be one that everyone can read. Um, which markers do you think of the... I know I said I'd move on to the microbiome. Which do you think are the greatest predictors of disease and health? Not related to things like um, heart attacks and Alzheimer's because you said ApoE4. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm laughing because... I, I, because I have a different take on it. Okay, Surprise. right. Let, let, let's, let's go. Let's, let's go with your take okay. first before we move so on. Traditionally, in my field, there is this idea that there are these super genes, right? Because you see them in the media and the literature. You see them on the front of Time magazine and CNN and Sky News. It's like, we discovered the obesity gene and we discovered the fat gene and we discovered yeah. the heart gene. And then <laughs> FTO gene and APOE gene. And they all get this like huge media and... Some researcher from Harvard is like a hero because he discovered this gene, right? So here's the, the reality of the story is that the genes that we are talking about, the ones that determine the kind of diet or lifestyle we should lead and the mm -hmm. choices that we make are what we call low penetrance or low impact genes. So by themselves, they do not cause disease, right? They do not and cannot cause a disease. What makes them interesting is that in some way, they interact with our body and change the way our body functions, whether it's an enzyme or a hormone or brain message. And what also makes them interesting is that there's usually a diet or a lifestyle choice you can make that is going to help optimize what they're doing. So again, as you'll notice, about four or five years ago, I had this complete epiphany that there were so many things that I had been doing wrong for the first kind of three quarters of my career in this space. And one of them was this idea that a single gene variant could give us so much information that we could make decisions around it. And we've seen this. MTHFR builds an industry, mm -hmm. right? MTHFR, if you look on the internet, there are websites, there are books, there are supplement companies, there are talk show hosts, there are... Um, and, and if you believe what you see on the internet, you'll think that every disease in the world is caused by having a gene variant in MTHFR, and you need to take like 30 different supplements to address MTHFR, but actually MTHFR is one gene variant that impacts the enzyme that is part of a methylation profile that is part of a bigger story happening in your body. So what I realized is that we had taken some of these genes and put them on these pedestals and kind of hero worship and said, well, if you have this, you need to do that. And so what happened is practitioners were ordering genetic tests of like a single gene mm -hmm. or two or three. But the reality is they do not cause disease. And by themselves, they do not change your body in such a way that you can make decisions. So here's a reason why we can't focus on only one SNP. And I'm going to give you a real life example of something that Ben and I actually discussed earlier in the podcast, and that is the area of detoxification. I even mentioned the GST SNP, and I said that it's really powerful in terms of determining how optimally you can detoxify. But there are many, many SNPs that need to be functioning optimally to ensure that we can clear toxins from the diet. So what I realized we needed to do is join all these SNPs together, look at all of them in terms of how they impact them, and we worked out that we could build something called a polygenic risk score. Now, polygenic risk scores are something that is all over the literature, the scientific literature for many years. But up until now, every single scientist was saying, 
I'm going to score a bunch of genes together and look to see whether I have diabetes or heart mm. disease or obesity. And no one thought to say, what happens if we put a whole lot of genes together and instead of looking at this big, complicated disease, let's think about a biochemical process, a metabolic process in our body. And so that's for me what was missing in genetics, that instead of placing these individual genes onto their pedestal, and there are some great ones, which I will mention, they still belong in a pathway. So maybe I can give you an example. APOE is one of the, so APOE, COMPT, MTHFR are some of the gene variants, FTO, that get the big media. Mm -hmm. And APOE is a gene that has been associated with Alzheimer's or losing memory loss. APOE44 specifically, right? Yeah. Well, APOE44, APOE, even APOE34. So ah, okay. it sounds kind of weird, but everyone gets either a two or a three or a four. So, and you have two copies, right? One copy from your mom, one copy from your dad. Now you have a fantastic result. You have what we call the neutral result. Can I share it? Can yes, I say yes, it? You can. Okay. So you have a three, three. Now three, three is what we call the neutral. So it, it, it doesn't carry risk with it. It doesn't carry with it. Great job. I have APOE three and I have a four. Right. Now it's this four that has got so much attention. And remember I said, the four is what had the evolutionary advantage. Mm -hmm. So if I had lived on the plains of Africa millions, thousands of years ago, I would have had an evolutionary advantage. I've actually got quite a lot of those evolutionary <laughs> advantage, particularly around the weight and energy and fat storage genes. But, but in particular, this E4 was what we, we, in fact, it's been known in the literature in some places as the God gene, because it's such an exciting gene. But now in our world that we have today, which is filled with processed foods and toxins in our environment and not enough exercise and not running after animals, we have a different story with E4. And E4 has been shown to be associated with cardiovascular disease and high cholesterol and memory loss and a million other things. I come from a family where both I have, my, my father's two sisters had Alzheimer's quite young in their life. And I knew from many years ago, 20 years ago, that I was carrying one of these three, four. So I had decided in my head that because I had a family history of Alzheimer's and I was carrying the E4, I was going to get Alzheimer's. Like I decided that that was my path, my health journey, and this was an inevitability about it. But once I started thinking about this concept of building these polygenic risk scores, what I call pathway pathway scores, mm -hmm. I, I grew a pathway, I, we actually built a pathway for, for memory loss. Okay. Right. Okay, fascinating. And one of the gene variants in the pathway was APOE. Mm -hmm. And because these pathways are built where you can weight the gene more or less, the APOE4 was weighted the strongest everyone. So we built a pathway and we weighted the APOE very, very the highest in the whole pathway. And when I got my report, I didn't have a high score. I didn't have a, a, high, a high, we don't use the word risk because we're, we're not a risk analysis company, mm -hmm. but my genes were not impacting me in such a significant way that there was Alzheimer's waiting for me around the corner. So for, the, so for me, it was a real aha moment that we can, even with a gene like APOE4, mm -hmm. 
We cannot assume that that is our destiny because all my other genes that had to do with cognitive decline and memory loss were actually great. So my total score actually came down lower. So suddenly I had to rewrite a story in my head about what I believed was my destiny. So we must be very careful. Okay, E4, E4 is a little bit different. It's a little bit stronger. Um, you need to explore it a little bit more, but still it's a single gene working in a, what we call a polygenic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So just if, kind of last comment is be very cautious when you see any media or literature that makes you believe that a single gene has the answer to your weight loss or to living long, you know, longevity gene or Alzheimer's gene. That makes perfect sense. And thank you very much for, for outlining that. I think I'm definitely going to have to look at polygenic risk scores now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to write it down. So I don't, I don't forget. <laughs> Happy to send you lots and lots of articles if you'd like. 100%. Yeah. I'm sure my listeners would love to read them as well. So I'll definitely link to them in the show notes. If there's any key ones or seminal papers, which you think would be of interest. Absolutely. We'll do brilliant. that. Some great ones. Excellent. Um, Another, I think we dove into to many topics before getting to this question, but um, the, I recently read the the PREDICT studies, and I'm actually interviewing one of the researchers on one of those uh, trials, and they're looking at, and I'll link to them in the show notes for listeners who don't know what they are, but in a nutshell, they're looking at how the individual responses to certain foods in terms of glycemic responses, as well as lipemia based on um, high fat foods and basically what you find is it's very hard to predict an individual's response to food and they're, they're linking it though to the microbiome now there's this seems to be a lot of interconnectivity between our genes and the microbiome but what's interesting is even with identical twins they can have different responses to the same food based on their microbiota. And I inter recently interviewed the Max Wins and they were saying, you know, one of them spikes with Prosecco, I think it was, um, and the blood glucose goes very high and the other one doesn't at all, right? It's very, very normal, it steadily rises and then comes back down. Using alcohol, maybe that wasn't the best example, but <laughs> um, but, but it is a real life example. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this? And do you think we should not be just looking at genetics by themselves, but maybe, the interplay within the, in the microbiome as well. Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a complex question um, and there's so many good points in there. So um, where do I begin? So- <laughs> Sorry, let's break it there, down. There, there's absolutely no doubt that the microbiome will change the way we respond to different food. And remember that no one piece of information about ourselves will give us the answer. Mm -hmm. Not genetics, not a blood test, not a questionnaire and not the microbiome. One of the issues I, so I know the PREDICT studies and there's a couple of companies that have spun out of research like that, where you do a microbiome test and they tell you how you can respond to different foods and therefore you must choose this food over that food over this food. So I wanna make some commentary again that it's a bit again saying that there's only one thing in me that I need to look at to understand who I am. But there's a couple of issues with that. So the first thing is, that the microbiome exists within um, what I call the gut ecosystem. And the gut ecosystem is the lining of our stomach and our colon and our intestines and our esophagus and our mouth, all the cells that do a thing. 
And there is this amazing interplay between these microbiome, which is our bacteria and our viruses and our yeasts and everything, and the world that they live in. Mm -hmm. And one thing I don't like that's happening is the idea that these are two separate conversations, that we can only look at the gut microbiome and ignore what's happening in the body's physiology that's interacting in, the, in, in this kind of tube, call it your tube in your body, that's holding your, holding your gut, your, your microbiome, mm -hmm. and that the answers sit there. But in actual fact, what the microbiome does, depending on what it's made up of, is it cell, sends signaling molecules into your epithelial cells in your, in your tube, right? Mm -hmm. Into your gut epithelial, your stomach epithelial. And it's this interplay between the signals that will be sent by the microbiome, as well as the integrity and health of your gut tube that will determine how you respond to foods, but also how healthy you'll be and, and what you think. So I do not believe for a minute that genetics has the answer to everything. I do not believe for a minute that the microbiome has the answer to everything. There are two issues for me in the microbiome. The first is just because we can measure it doesn't mean we necessarily know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems the microbiome is suffering from at the moment is that technology has improved exponentially in terms of what we can measure. But the microbiome is where genetics was 20 years ago when we were trying to figure out, we have this data, we can measure it. Now, what are the recommendations that we make? So the reason I say that is I did a company called Day2. And Day2 were the first company that came out of Israel to have this idea that if I measure your microbiome with a stool test, I can tell you which foods to eat based on how you will respond to them from a glycemic, from a blood glucose point of view. And then when I got my um, report mm -hmm. and I have a fancy app and I have a report and I looked at it, what it told me is it told me what diet to eat based on how my gut microbiome will respond in terms of glucose. But when I looked at it and I thought about what a healthy diet would look like, there wasn't a correlation. Right, okay. It was a terrible diet because the only thing they were considering is how my microbiome changed the way I responded to glycemic food. But I'd never forget it, that there was like a real like processed food that had a lower response and almonds, raw almonds had a higher response. So they recommended the processed food. Right. Okay. And I was horrified, right? Because what they were doing was they giving you this little piece of information, but in the context of optimal health and living, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. So we need to be very careful when we use a single piece of information out of context mm -hmm of what we're trying to achieve, which is optimal health and everything. And I, I, to this day, was absolutely horrified by the recommendations I got because it had nothing to do with health and only was answering a question of how does my microbiome change my glycemic response. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. You can't just take one marker, one test, and then not look at the whole, the whole picture. Um, yeah. My mind's whirling now, but I realize we haven't got that much time. So no, we don't. No, we don't. So if yeah. you, 
because we're running out of time, I'm going to ask you one more question before we move on to the last three questions. I ask everyone that comes on the, ch- the show and we can make them very, very quick. Right, because okay. you have to go in nine minutes. So <laughs> what, okay. what's the future of nutrigenomics in your opinion? So I think what's going to happen is we need to integrate our understanding with genetics into other ways of measuring. So just looking at genetics alone is not going to be enough. I think we're going to see an integration of genetics with our wearables, our aura mm. ring, our, our continuous glucose monitoring. We've got to make the connection between the data. That's what the future is going to hold. Excellent. And with the last three questions that I ask everyone on the, that comes on the show, the first one is, what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? So it's, it's probably not the obvious, but I am uh, very obsessed with cold water. No, I am. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cry so I live open. very close to the ocean. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky to live close to the ocean and I avidly and as often as I can swim, um, swim in the cold ocean. I believe that swimming a in cold water and b in the cold in an ocean as in nature are the, are the two greatest um, things I can do. Wonderful. You're not alone in that regard, I'm sure. Um, Second one being, how can healthcare guidelines become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we have spoken about today? Sure. Yeah, that quick quick answer to that, that, right? That's a big one, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is we need to be teaching the stuff at um, university level. Microbiome, epigenetics, genetics. If our healthcare professionals do not understand the conversation that you and I are having, Mm -hmm. then we're never going to change healthcare. Brilliant. I think you answered that perfectly. (laughs) And And quickly. Yeah, and quickly. (laughs) And the last one being, can you provide the listeners with three quick tips to improve the health and well-being from today? Okay, so, well, I'm going to go back to the one I said. So immersion in nature is the greatest thing you can do. It doesn't have to be cold water ocean, but it needs to be walking in the forest, just connecting with nature. I, I incredibly healing. I'm a huge fan of cruciferous vegetables and sulforaphane. Like for me, it is one of the greatest discoveries of the century and what it can do for who we are. Um, <laughs> the third one, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the most important thing that I've learned for myself is being kind to myself and being gentle. I know that's not a nutrient. I don't know. It's not a, but really in the world we're living to today. Wow. That's actually one of the, that's the hardest of all the three. And I think probably one of the most important. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Yale, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. I think I could speak to you forever, (laughs) the amount of questions I have for you. Um, So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and I hope that we can do this again soon. Thanks, Ben. It's, It's been super fun. I really enjoyed your questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing. 
And thank you all for your support. <laughs>